0: Welcome to the Ransom Heart Podcast. This is Morgan Snyder, and we are about to pick up on part two of a very holy conversation with one of our dear allies, John Moorhead. After a long battle with lung cancer, John crossed over into the fullness of life in March of 2015. But before he did, we had a chance to savor a joy-filled conversation about the more that is being made available to us today in the kingdom of God. This was originally recorded for a podcast for our mission at becomegoodsoil.com, but as we prayed, we sensed that it held within it some treasures for our wider community. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast series, you will definitely want to hit pause here on this episode and go back and begin with the first part. As we turn towards our second and final portion of this conversation, let's pick up with me sharing from a letter that John had written to me Prior to this conversation, remember we live in a God bathed world. It's a safe place no matter what, no matter what. And you went on to say that God will provide for you, even now, using every circumstance to father you, every circumstance to help you become. He will do that for you, and He'll do that for those that you love. He wrote that the world is a safe place no matter what. He will, he will work all things for good, even pressure, even fear. You can count on it. And John, that's a pretty disruptive statement. I remember receiving that letter and much like your experience with beliefs, my emotions didn't line up with that reality, but something deep in my heart felt an invitation, an invitation to receive by the supernatural work of God, a reshaping of my belief structure. But that's pretty radical thinking. There aren't many people, and much of myself included, that believe that the world is a perfectly safe place. And so I wonder if that's not one of the roots of the struggle. Can you put words to what you meant and what you believe behind such radical, preposterous words like that?
1: You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, and this happens regularly now because of where I am in my life, is that on the one hand, I truly am experiencing this joy that cannot be stolen. But on the other hand, it's not like I am without fear. Mm -hmm. And I want to be quick to mention that. It's not like I have totally disengaged from my emotions and they don't exist and I'm not pulled by them. I think it has to do with a will and just deciding to move forward no matter what. But with regards to what you referred to there, Morgan. Much of that, actually, as you know, is from Chapter 3 of The Divine Conspiracy. That's the name of Chapter 3, What Jesus Knew. I have been reading that chapter a couple, three times a year for the past number of years because it is challenging, but it comes down to, and as Willard does so well in that chapter, he talks about what Jesus said and how he lived, which is a manifestation of the truth that it is a God-bathed world. Yes, there is darkness. Yes, there is a prince of this world. Yes, we do battle with the evil forces. I don't mean to deny any of that, but it gets back to, to the feeling thing. Do we battle out of fear or do we battle in confidence? Within certain limits, certainly, it seems to me that it really matters less what we do than how we do it. And to the extent that we are able to live in the truth that in this divine conspiracy of good overcoming evil into which we've been called, (laughs) it succeeds. It will succeed. Mm. That's the truth. That's the great story of all stories. And so... Part of it relates to the circumstances and what I mentioned about God showing up there. Part of it has to do with simply sitting down in the fact that Jesus was the smartest man that ever lived. And he knew more about everything. And I think Willard says in one place, he said, you know, there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus as God. (laughs) Mm. Interesting. (laughs) And what he meant by that is... That gets back to the don't worry, little flock. You know, your heavenly Father's going to take care of you. You know, and what father would give his son when he asked for a loaf of bread, give him a stone, and so forth. Mm. And so I think that's where I rest. Yes. I rest in what Jesus said about his father, about God, about this world. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have trouble and wrestle with his emotions. He certainly did. But there was something in him, and it was the glory laid before him, and it was real, and he knew it. And that's where I rest. I just don't know anywhere else to turn.
0: Well, John, I think it's pretty clear in that response that you really have come to know Jesus well. You've cultivated a relationship with him. You have learned the scriptures to understand his stories, to know his heart, to know what it's like to learn from the most brilliant person that ever lived, and even more, the man who modeled what it is to live in a god bathed world and what it is to live out a place of sonship. And you also mentioned, you know, returning again and again to chapter three of Divine Conspiracy and when you say some of those things, my antenna goes up with the category of spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines because that can become a very religious idea when it's talked about in the abstract. But the reality is God has designed the kingdom to work in such a way where we are meant to be apprentices, where we're growing regularly through practice and training, and we're growing into maturity where we get to become the wholehearted people that God made us to be. And I'm very curious, John, as you have grown and matured and become an elder and a sage in the kingdom, and now as you're nearing ever closer the end of your beginning and life gets more clear, I would love to know what are those spiritual practices that you find are not religious activity, but in fact, the things, the activities which you choose to engage in on a regular basis to make your life accessible to more
1: of the life of God. Space and silence, Morgan. (laughs) Space and silence. And I hesitate to use the word meditation because it means different things to different people, but it is so necessary in the world. It is so necessary – to unplug, to sit down, and to allow your thoughts to pass in front of you like ships going out to sea and not indulge them. It's so critical to practice the presence of God, to practice the very real presence, to allow space for him. And I don't do that as much as I think probably would benefit me But it is a priority and space and silence and dismissing my thoughts, which involves trust. It's a scary thing to do is to let those thoughts go because they're really important, right? Right. (laughs) And I don't mean you park your mind. I don't mean you totally park your mind. It's just that you open it. I have found that God blesses me physiologically, if you will, physically, I experience a sense of well-being, a sense that everything is going to be okay. It's that, you know, the theme of I am greater. He also has had me practice that. Mm -hmm. And that was way back in the fall of 2005. But he asked me to practice the discipline on a regular basis of going through my mind and filling in the blanks. You know, he says, I am greater, he wants me to say, I am greater than, I am greater than your cancer, I am greater than financial insecurity, I am greater than the affliction that this person in your family that you love so much, this affliction of mental illness, I'm greater than that, I'm greater than the misunderstanding that exists between you and your wife. You know, you each have your own stories, and this is a whole nother talk. But one of the greatest things that has happened in my marriage is that God has enabled me, has helped me to indulge and validate my wife's emotions based upon her story mm-hmm. and not look at them as an indicator of absolute truth. So I don't have to argue. Whether her feelings are valid or not. Coming from where she comes from, they're valid. And it took, it took me 60 years to mm-hmm. get there. <laughs> but finally, yes. I have dismissed, he's cleansed me of all the assumptions from coming from my anger and shame, from interactions with women my entire life. That's gone. Mm. And so now I see my wife for who she is, I'm able to speak into her, and I see her, most importantly, living from her own brokenness, just like I do. Yes. And it's not all about me anymore. Mm. So I don't know how I got off on that. It it was just another example of what is available to us.
0: Oh, it's gold. It's gold. And, John, what would you say, even particularly, I know you have such a heart for younger men that are – in a different season of life than you, where they're in the throes of time feels like the utmost scarcity, you know, young kids, young careers, young marriages, but nonetheless, there's no time that it's more important to have these disciplines that you said of space and of silence, some coaching of a father to a son operationally. What would you say to a younger man of how to move in that direction?
1: I'm going to approach this in a sort of a circular way, but I'm going to get back to the question. Something which is very, very simple and brought me to a place where I believed and truly understood the value of that space and silence with God, it would seem like it's unrelated, but it wasn't at all. And I'm so glad that this popped into my mind because this is really important to me. In one of Willard's talks, he said something in passing that just struck me because of its simplicity and yet its power. And I can't remember exactly the way we put it, but he said something like, when you live with the love of Jesus, you are, as you go through your day, simply looking to bless people where they are. In your interactions with them on the phone, at the supermarket, in traffic, you know, whatever it is. You have a good will towards them mm. and you want to bless them. And what he said was, whatever the circumstance, whether the encounter be 10 seconds or 10 days, you would like that person to get to the point either immediately or down the road where he thinks to himself, thank God for that man.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That registered with me because I think we've all had our moments where we receive an unexpected smile. A kind act from a stranger, or something like that, and how disruptive that is, and how it just, for a moment, it's like everything is shaken and there's a different world going on. And there's such power in that. So, to get to where I want to go, it began as a discipline. There was great intention in starting to do that. Yes. But oh my goodness, it developed a life of its own, Morgan. So now as it began to be a part of my life and I experienced life in return from that, it made it so much easier then to see the importance of unplugging and sitting down and just maybe beginning with gratitude Hmm. for the experience of life, the moment, whatever the opportunity was and when you compare those moments of love past and received with tasks that you have to do i'll tell you the, <laughs> the relative importance becomes pretty clear
0: yes well john that's just fascinating you'd say that because several times i've been in you know busy hurried mode and grabbed a few precious minutes to sit down and be with god and one of the first things he's instructed me to do is make a list of everything I'm grateful for, Mm. and just start a list. And it started with even this prayer of Father. I started praying, you know, the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, Father. And then I even got stuck there, and I just felt like he was saying, no, don't just pray that. How have I been Father to you? And I started making a list of very practical ways that God has been Father, both in the last 48 hours and then over the last decades. And as you're saying, I could feel some shift in my heart where it went from hurriedness to gratitude mm-hmm. and this posture of gratitude that I was so quickly able to access. John Orberg wrote a fascinating book, Soul Keeping, that was just published that's about Dallas's life. And he talked about that idea of blessing in it that Dallas taught on regularly. And and he was saying that blessing and cursing are not compartmentalized Bible words at all. But they're simply the two ways and the only two ways that we treat people. They're as inescapable as breathing out and breathing in. And I was so haunted by those words because if it's true that as we breathe in and out, it's that much of a kingdom reality that we are either blessing or cursing people with our actions and literally it's not just words but it's the projection of good it's a manifestation of the kingdom of god a projection of good or a projection of evil towards and with every person we encounter whether it's our wife or like you said the person at the grocery store and those are weighty Matters. And I realize when the kingdom of God is always available, or there's the power for me to actually curse people and project evil, then all the more it reminds me I want to be about the kingdom of God today, right here, right now. And so it's such an invitation then to consider the value of taking, fighting for those rare, precious moments to pause to do an inventory to find our hearts grateful so that we might access the kingdom of God and be the kind of people that know how to love better.
1: Yes, yes. And to get back to your point about how the idea of disciplines can be corrupted, remember it's grace in us, it's love in us that does those things. It's not by determined effort. It's not something to check off the list or something like that. It's love in us that simply flows, mm. and we just need to facilitate it. We need to see that it's good to let it flow and let it go. Um, mm. I never told you this quick, true story about Dallas Willard. I met him one time in 2004. I flew up to Columbus, Ohio to listen to him talk. Okay. And at the time, my son was entertaining the possibility of going out to USC. He majored in philosophy, and he wanted to study under Willard. And he was excited I was going to go listen to him talk. And I got there early with a friend, and Dallas was out sitting in the middle of a bunch of empty seats out where everybody was going to sit. <laughs> and, Beautiful. And uh, we saw him, and we came up behind him, and I introduced myself, and I just took a minute to thank him. And I explained about my son and how he was hoping to come out and study under him. And Dallas says, what is his name? Hmm. And he takes out, and I never will forget this, he had his notes in one of those bright yellow folders, you know, the colored folders that you have. It was bright yellow. And he took out a black flare pen, and he wrote my son's name in large letters on the front of that yellow folder with his notes in it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And what was the effect
0: in you in that moment?
1: Just to reflect on that brings tears. Mm. It was the love of God. The message was, you matter.
0: Mm. It's beautiful.
1: You know, there's a quote at the end of one of my journals here, and maybe this would be a good time. F.B. Meyer said, probably the only way to know the love of Christ is to begin to show it. The emotionalist who... Is easily affected by appeals to the senses, does not know it. The theorist or rhapsodist does not know it, but the soul that endeavors to show the love of Christ knows it. As Christ's love, through you, broadens, lengthens, deepens, heightens, you will know the love of Christ, not intellectually, but experimentally.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've found that to be true.
0: That's good, John. Wow. John, shifting gears, this is such a sacred conversation. I'm so grateful. I have some questions that I just want to get to while I have your time and your presence. One of them that was very pressing that, again, it just feels like one of those risky questions, John. But because I love you and I know you love me and you love God, I just want to ask it. Today's wisdom— with yesterday's story, what are your regrets? Or maybe another way of saying it is, what would you have done different if you could have today's wisdom, but you could wind back the clock and be a young man again?
1: The answer is just really, really clear, Morgan. I would have risked more. Mm. I would have risked more in every area of my life. In my own story, what held me back was playing it safe.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, it's easy to sit here, obviously, and look back and say, you know, I wish I would have headed that direction. In the moment when you're dealing with practical things and you have other people or a family to consider, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think I mentioned this to you. There's this obvious truth. That is true from the beginning to the end of the Bible and true in life everywhere. And it's this faith only grows through adversity. Mm. It doesn't grow any other way. I wish that were not the case. Yes. <laughs> yes. But that's the way it is. And because I am oh my gosh, I'm just stunned as I talk to you here. It's almost like I feel like somebody else is talking to you. This person with this faith, he wasn't around for the first 50 years of my life. And I'm still getting to know him. (laughs) But it was always available. It was always available. And again, by risking, I don't mean like, you don't begin to risk, especially when you're young, by, you know, getting on a raft and heading across the ocean. Risk in the little things. Start small. Test God in the small things and then go from there.
0: Mm. John, it's very fascinating, your comment of this fundamental idea of the human person. Like you said, in some ways, you barely recognize the person person it's communicating now, the person you've become. And I really appreciate how you articulated it. wasn't the person that you were, that you lived out of for most of your first 50 years. And yet it was a person that's always was available. And so, I mean, I hear you giving this, this beautiful visibility to this civil war within us of the true self And the false self, and I think what I hear you describing is there's a man that God intended since before creation for you to become, and the visibility of that person grew very little in your first 50 years, and then as you began yielding to God and giving him access and permission into your life, it just skyrocketed where the false man who's rooted in fear began to diminish And the true man whose life is only found through and in intimacy with God began to grow and receive higher visibility in your life. And now as you are maturing, it's very fascinating where you're finding yourself being a new person, but it's the true you that had been waiting to come forth. Is that accurate?
1: That's accurate. Thank you, Morgan. That's very accurate. You put it very, very well. And that's the encouraging thing. You know, I said it before, we never know what life really has to offer until we manage to let go of what we believe it should offer. That's laying down the false self.
0: Yeah, it's so good, John. We have a mutual friend, Brian Draper, and he wrote a great book with a fantastic title, What Matters Most? What a great question because, boy, there is a belief in us that's shaping 100% of our actions – of what we believe matters most. And it would do well of us to pause and give consideration to what we've come to believe about what matters most. But in that book, Brian quoted you in a beautiful dialogue you had with him. And I'd love to read those words. You were talking about nearing the end of your days on this earth. And these are the words you put to Brian. You said, although grieving for others – who will deal with my absence, I nevertheless experience strong waves of anticipation of good. That good will simply be a deeper experience of the joy I have now, in the kiss of the wind on my cheek, the cool, soft grass comforting my feet, the pink and purple skies changing by the minute, the sound of a child laughing, or an ocean roar, or the taste of my wife's lips. Perhaps more than any of these, though, You concluded, it is the deep joy in receiving love, even as I pass it on. Those are holy words, John. Where does your heart go as you hear them?
1: Gratitude. Gratitude. Who would think that the sweetest experience of a kiss would be when you're 68 years old?
0: Hmm. John, there's such an invitation in your words there to me and to so many other men as we just find ourselves in the frenetic pace of the culture. There's an invitation here on two levels I feel as a reaction to it. and One is to be called into the present moment of just the miracle of life and yes. to think the miracle of life of how much I miss that God is pouring out A God breathed reality that actually will save my life right here, right now. That is in the simplicity of what you're naming, the simplicity of these gifts that are just that God is beckoning us to turn our heart to in the dailies of the cool, soft grass, the kiss of our wife, the laughter of a child. And also your words, John, of the strong waves of anticipation of good to move from the idea of that to a spiritual reality that we can, in any circumstance, and in every situation, because of the gospel, we can actually anticipate the goodness that's coming and live out of that place. That's radical.
1: It's true. It's absolutely true. And I tell my friends, Morgan, that the depth of my experience of that and the vitality that it brings clearly indicates to me that the real me is already beginning to separate from the physical me.
0: Say more, John.
1: It's hard. It's hard to describe. But there are experiences of the soul, of the heart in those things and in anticipation of goodness I guess it was Brother Lawrence who said, I'm almost to the point where I, not that I believe, but that I know. It is moving from a level of belief into an experiential thing of reality and what real life, the eternal kind of life really is. And it is the anticipation of goodness. Mm. That's what it is. It's the anticipation of goodness. Mm. I mean, I can't take you with me to this place where I am, Morgan. I mean, look around this world. We live in a world at war, and it is a dark place and getting darker. It's devastating to look around. Can you imagine what it's like for me to anticipate (laughs) goodness? To move to a place where good just keeps coming towards me more and more and more. I mean, the joy that that brings is beyond words, and I really can't say more. Hmm. I'm happy. You know, Paul said it, you know, it would be better for me to leave. It's more necessary for me to stay. And I am very content where I am, and I want to stay. I see God using me day in and day out. I still have a wonderful sense of purpose. Yes. So I'm good with that. Mm. But on the other hand, (laughs) I continue to anticipate. I have these waves where I just anticipate goodness more and more and more.
0: Mm. Well, John, you're such a courageous man in living with reality. You actually did something that's pretty radical you shared with me last week and that you went ahead and had your grave marker placed on what will one day be the place that your earthly body will lay, just celebrating the release and the fullness of your true self into the goodness of all the reality of the kingdom. And I'm sitting here right now and I'm actually looking at the picture of your grave marker. And I've been looking at a picture of you in the mountains, which has just been holy because we're on a, you know, just a call. We don't get to be face to face today, but I'm now looking at the picture of this grave marker, and I'd love to just read it. It says Isaiah 40, 31, and has a beautiful picture of a soaring eagle. And it says John Milton Moorhead, April 27th, 1946. And at the base of it, it says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. John, I'd be so honored to know your heart behind this grave marker and what it was that you wanted to leave as your last sentence to all the world as you testify when you've left the soil and you've gone to be free. Why did you choose this?
1: People have been very patient with me. (laughs) The truth is that out of my brokenness, I hurt a lot of people, but they have loved me unconditionally. They have forgiven me. I have continued to grow. And as I said before, I'm a blessed man. The end of construction thing actually was prompted by what Dallas said about it being the end of our beginning, the end of his beginning. And I hope that when people see that, that they see others in that light and that they grant them grace and yes. forgiveness they understand what's going on and that there is a time when the construction is completed mm-hmm. and things will be the way they're supposed to be and it will be awesome but between now and then there's a lot of construction going on and i love what you're engaged in morgan and talking about it in those terms mm. i'm deeply thankful
0: mm. It's so hopeful, John. I just so appreciate your words. Hopefully it will help us see others differently. And as you're speaking, I'm just so aware of how deeply broken of a man I am and so easily can get focused on the brokenness of others and how it hurts me. But as I dive into this conversation, I'm just keenly aware of my own brokenness and Yet again, the word gratitude, of gratitude for the patience that people choose to extend to me and the patience with the fact that I live in a deep and vast construction site that, that one day will be made as it's supposed to be. Yes, yes. John, it's just such a beautiful honor to have this time. I sense to close us, but before I do that, are there any words unspoken any thoughts unshared that are on your heart for this conversation that you'd like to put out
1: there? There's more. There's always more. I can't say it enough, Morgan. There's always more.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: More life. More vitality. I would just encourage those listening to seek to find out what life really does have to offer. It's so much more than what we believe it should offer. We settle for so much less than we should.
0: John, thank you. I received that personally forever. This conversation, that's the way I'll choose to remember it, that there's more. So thank you. And, you know, I think of our good friend Sam and what he's brought to us from Hawaii. One of the kingdom treasures he's brought to us is that in the Hawaiian culture, they never say goodbye. They don't have a word for goodbye. They use the phrase ahui ho. And ahui ho means until we meet again. And just have so much hope and trust and belief that we two will be together again, just not yet. So I choose not to say goodbye, but ahui ho to you, my friend and my brother, and close us all with the scripture that you have proclaimed on your grave marker and proclaimed in our hearts today. But those who hope in God, those who choose to believe that there is more will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint.